VoiceOver describes what's happening on your iPhone screen. VoiceOver on settings. So you can navigate it just by listening. Books, contacts, calendar, double tap to open. Breakfast with Anna from 10 to 11. And get on with your day. Accessibility. There's more to iPhone. This is the Game Football Podcast from The Times. Today, Graham Potter enjoys a fantastic night, his best as Chelsea boss, as they come past Borussia Dortmund in the Champions League. They made it through to the last eight, but how much did they deserve it? And what does it mean for Potter's future? We'll be talking about Tottenham Hotspur, who went crashing out without a goal over two legs against AC Milan. What does it mean for the future of Antonio Conte, Harry Kane, And what direction is the club moving in? We'll also look ahead to a host of games in the Premier League this weekend as a number of teams vying for European qualification take on a number of teams entrenched in the relegation battle. This is the game. Hello again. Welcome to the Game Podcast. I am Hugh Wizencroft alongside Tom Olnert and Gregor Robertson. Um... Where do we begin? It's a tough one. Tottenham knocked out. Chelsea go through in the Champions League. Bit of a toss-up. I think we're going to start with Chelsea. Um, Just because of the relief that we saw at full-time. And and Stamford Bridge was a a totally different place. A really Graham Potter having his best night as Chelsea manager so far. They overcame a first-leg deficit against Borussia Dortmund to reach the Champions League quarter-finals. Um, And the goal that settled the tie, which overturned the 1-0 advantage, led to Chelsea's 2-1 victory, came in uh, disputable fashion. Let's call it that from the penalty spot. Uh, Dortmund furious, VAR review, penalised Marius Wolf for handball from Ben Chilwell's cross. And then Kai Havertz hit the post with his spot kick only for the retake to be, uh, sorry, only for the penalty to be retaken um, due to encroachment. It was an eventful evening. But um, before we come to the actuality of what happened on the pitch, I think the wider meaning is why we're starting with Chelsea. Graham Potter, um, interesting stat, just the second English manager to win five Champions League games in a single season. That's after Bobby Robson, the great, did it with Newcastle in 2002-2003. But generally speaking, given all of the difficulties, the stress and pressure on the game against Leeds at the weekend, which Chelsea won, they then backed it up in the Champions League to reach the last eight, Gregor. How big a night was it for Potter? How big a night was it for Chelsea? It's huge for both. I think, you know, as you alluded to there, you saw a, a very different atmosphere at Stamford Bridge. Um, you know, it was crackling and the, the, the fans were, knew that they had a part to play in getting in hauling Chelsea uh, to victory. Um, and the sort of, you know how important that was going to be for their for their season and for for their manager and his future. Um, and I think you saw that in in Potter's sort of demeanour on the touchline. He was seemed more animated. He was, you, you know, he's quite emotional looking at the end in terms of you know embracing his players and uh, Todd Bowley in the tunnel afterwards as well. Um, and I think also in a kind of from a f- football side as well, you saw the sort of, you see some green shoots for the future as well. I think in the way that they played and. You know, having having players having Chilwell and Reese James fit at wing back, the, the kind of box midfield that they they played, and we've seen him play that at, at Brighton, uh, which suits it certainly suited Kai Havertz. Uh, you know, he's a player we've talked spoken about a lot on the podcast, and 
know how hard it seems to get the best out of him. That was one of his best performances in a long time in a Chelsea shirt, and it suits Joao Felix as well. So they're the kind of two number tens uh, with Fernandez and Kovacic, uh, the the deeper line of the midfielders. It suited uh, Cucurella, who's had a tough a tough time in his Chelsea career so far, but you know for balance in the back three. Uh, Fafana is perfect for the, for the other side. Koulibaly looks better with uh, a bit of protection either side of him. Um, the only question mark is is up front and and uh, Raheem Sterling. And look, he 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 did a lot for the team. He occupied defenders. He he sort of helped make space for Havertz and and uh, and and Felix. I think he touched the ball seventeen times. Uh, that'd be the only question mark for me looking forward. But that's one. And the, as you've said as well, they they got the rub of the green with some decisions, but it's a huge night. It felt like you can kind of dispel any thoughts of him, of of Potter's future being in doubt for the rest of this season. I think it would take something pretty remarkable for for that to change now. Um, and as I say, in this performance, in this team, you see green shoots of of uh, optimism for the future now. Tom, what did you make of the the magnitude of this victory? Yeah, I mean, I, I guess it kind of shows in a way the sort of crazy nature of of Chelsea at the moment. Um, that one win can can really transform the whole mood of the club, um, and and also the perception of of Graham Potter. I mean, I think one of the biggest takeaways from this match was the kind of the connection I think that that Potter seemed to have for the first time with with the crowd, with the Stamford Bridge fans. Um, you know, he seemed like a different. A different manager almost you know and only he knows if he was kind of playing up to a slightly different uh part or whether this is you know now the the real authentic uh graham potter that we're going to see from now on um but you know we saw him kind of you know waving his arms around you know beckoning for more noise this kind of thing which we've seen from other managers but not so much him and i think you know the chelsea fans really bought into that um I mean, I think they, you know, they were, they, they were, they had some luck. You know, I think the, the penalty was a harsh decision. They obviously were lucky to get a, get a second go, um, but those are the kind of you know those are the kind of breaks you need sometimes to kind of transform a, a bad run of form. Um, and equally, I think it's worth saying, you know, that Dortmund are a very very good side in, in in excellent form. You know, as you said, ten wins in the balance, joint top of the Bundesliga. You know, this wasn't a you know a sort of mediocre last sixteen opponent. You know, they're a very good side, and Chelsea and Chelsea were worthy winners in my opinion in the end. And and you look at it now and you sort of wonder, is it crazy to think that this Chelsea could actually go quite far in this tournament? You know, they, they haven't got the kind of distractions, if you like, of of uh, the Premier League. Um, they can put everything they want to into this tournament, really base base the, the rest of their season around it. And, and who knows? You know, we've seen Chelsea do this before when they've got almost nothing to play for in the league. Um, they produce the magic in, in the Champions League. So, uh, so yeah, big win for, for Potter, big win for Chelsea. I mean, I might have to disagree with you a little bit. I, I, I was kind of surprised by the... I think people got caught up in the emotion a little bit, and you know I'm not one for doing that too often, but um, I don't think Chelsea were that good, you know, that people were making out, you know, that this is the, the springboard into something special, even what you just said there, Tom. I mean, we're, we're getting run carried away a little bit, aren't we? I mean, the idea that Chelsea are going to win the Champions League based on, on what? I mean, Dortmund weren't brilliant, Um they did control parts of the game in terms of possession, never really threatened. But, um, you know, the two Chelsea goals, there's a bit of a bobble. Um, Sterling manages to get a shot off, having had a clear air shot. 
Um, fortunate first goal, in my opinion, even though it was a good move. Uh, Chilwell put down the left and a decent ball into the middle. You know, Royce could have easily tackled him there and, and they wouldn't have had the first goal. Um, the second goal is very debatable. Um, I guess we can come to it. But um, in my opinion, on the overall performance, yes, it's much better from Chelsea, but not where it needs to be for us to believe that this team can do anything special, to be perfectly honest. Um, I watched it and I just, I, I had fingers crossed for a good draw in the next round for Graham Potter and Chelsea, to be perfectly honest. That's as much as I can hope for off the back of that result because the bigger teams in the Champions League, based on that, in my opinion, will still swap, you know, swap them to one side. I mean, I guess the thing to say there is, is yes, you're probably right. Um, but equally, you know, I just wondered that this season, particularly the Champions League, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't strike me that there are um, perhaps like normal sort of two or three standout teams. Of course, Real Madrid, you know, we know will probably be there in the final. But otherwise, you know, PSG are already out. Bayern have, have been in, you know, in fairly wobbly form in recent weeks. Um, you know, who are, we, who are we thinking that are the kind of standout clubs that Chelsea, a club like Chelsea might have to be? And I think, you know, this is the kind of season, it's been said many times with the World Cup, that where something I think slightly strange could happen in, 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 the, in the Champions League. We're already seeing it in the domestic leagues with Arsenal, for example, Napoli. You know, this, this, is, this is a slightly strange season when I think <clears throat> the kind of latter stages of the season we will see some of the bigger players at the bigger teams um, fatigue and there could be an opening for a, for a surprise. Uh, let's see. You're, you're probably right. But, um, you know, I didn't say win it, to be fair. I said could go far. So let's uh, let's just qualify that one. I mean, even that's a stretch for me. But, but there you go. I guess they've already gone far <laughs> in some people's eyes or at least further than we thought they might. Um, but, yeah, I, I, you know, I, I thought positive evening and an interesting evening, something that you could take away from the game. Gregor, um, you know, we, we've spoken before about Graham Potter and lots of people have concerning his, his demeanour, um, you know, and he's had to respond to numerous questions about, yeah, for want of a better word, you know, his dullness, calmness, if you like, uh, lack of reaction, lack of bite compared to what we see from a lot of the other top managers in Europe, particularly on the touchline. We saw a lot of that. We saw animation. We saw him getting the 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 crowd charged up at Stamford Bridge. Maybe that will build a connection between him and this group of fans, many of whom, of course, want him out, um, or at least wanted him out before the game. Um, but but it was interesting to see a bit of a change there, a, a tweak. What do you what did you make of that? Yeah, I thought I, I thought as well that uh, Kai Havertz spoke quite interestingly after the game. He said, "We know that the pressure is coming at him." Uh, you can see he's a big manager. We have hundreds of coaches in England that think they know better than him, but we know in the changing room he's a big personality and a big manager for us. He helps all of us. We're 100% behind him, even though people maybe don't see it. So, like, I think the fact that, that Havertz is saying he's a, a big personality, like, you know, we were, we split, that's the, the conversation. It was almost predictable that if he was if he had a, a tough tough spell, you know, we we spoke about when he got the job. Has he has he got that edge, that kind of stature to 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 be the Chelsea manager? Um, and it's a valid question because it's a such a it's been such a rise for him and such a such a uh, change and a difference to managing Brighton. Um, but I thought that was quite quite instructive, uh, and I think you could see genuinely on the pitch afterwards. That the players are all behind them, and um, you know, as you as you alluded to, there's a start, the kind of possibly the start of a, a connection, belatedly growing between uh, Potter and and the club as a whole. 
Um, you know, as you say, there were a lot of supporters did want him out. That's the nature of modern football, though the kind of short-term thinking. And but I think if if he was to, you know, go on a little run now, or just you start to see his Chelsea team take shape, uh, you know, his influence on the team in terms of the way they're playing, um, I think everyone would be delighted to jump aboard this train because it's different. It, you know, his appointment was exciting. It was a risk, but it's something that I think very quickly the atmosphere could change if, uh, as I say, they, they go on a little run and, and they've got some games you would deem winnable coming up too now in the Premier League. Yeah, away at Leicester, home to Everton and then Aston Villa at Stamford Bridge after that as well. Um, and of course, I'll probably have a Champions League in the middle of that that run uh, game, depending on the draw. Um I guess the, the chances of a good result in that uh, remain to be seen. But um, yeah, a good chance of going on a run uh, in the Premier League. I, I'm kind of sad you use the analogy of a train because I was going to ask you a bit like I spoke to Tom a second ago about whether you think it will be lift off. I know you say there's a chance there, but um, trains don't lift off. So you've kind of killed me there. <laughs> um, but but you, get what, you get what I mean. Um, was, I, was I harsh to say that, that I didn't think the performance was... I thought, listen, it was good, very good maybe, but outstanding was a little bit much for me. No, yeah, I, I kind of agree. I, mean, I actually thought Dortmund were quite poor. You know, they didn't even really, when Chelsea were 2 up, you didn't really see that much of a reaction either, I didn't think. Um, but I, I think the biggest thing, almost more important than the performance itself was the fact, was the atmosphere in, inside Stamford Bridge and the fact that there was like, no question about commitment levels and desire and passion on, on display. That was almost more important. But I also think there were some interesting tacti- tactical things about the game. They, they also played quite direct for periods. I read somewhere that this was the second highest number of uh, direct like long balls that Chelsea have played, essentially, since Potter's been at the helm. Uh, you know, they, they clearly tried to work situations to get Sterling breaking breaking them behind uh, Dortmund's back back four. So, um, and I think they had six offsides, which was the most in his his uh, in his his Chelsea reign as well. So uh, that's not a good thing, but it shows what their intent is. Uh, so I thought, you know, there were, as I say, green shoots from a tactical point of view as well. But part of that is because he's got players fit. Um, he's had a little bit more time now to have to 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 have the to work with the players and they've also got players at his disposal that allows him to play in a way that I think we know he'll want to play. So, um, or he's certainly comfortable playing and he was, you know, comfortable playing that way with Brighton at the start of the season too. So, look, it's it's undoubtedly positive. It's a big step forward, but I agree. It's not like, I wouldn't start talking about them as contenders yet. Tom, um, some somewhat, I guess a little bit was made, maybe not too much. You guys can tell me about Kai Havertz. Um, I was going to say a lot was made about him. That's why I stumbled because I'm not sure how big it was, but it, it at least made an interesting conversation that some felt big game Kai Havertz was back. Well, he has to be big game Kai Havertz because clearly he isn't there for the little games. So um, it was good to see him play well. He's an elegant footballer who rarely delivers. Um, what did you make of his performance? 
Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, Havertz in a way is always a, a player that you kind of think technically he's, he's good. He links up well. He holds the ball up well. He brings other players into play. It's just the question is, is this guy going to be someone who you can rely on to score goals consistent, consistently enough um, for a team like Chelsea? Um, and I think, you know, so far we've, that's, you know, the answer has been no. Um, I think he played well in this game. Uh, I guess kudos to him for, for taking the retake. Um, although I always think, you know, when players kind of get praised for bravery in that sense, you always think, well, if they didn't take the retake, then it would almost look even worse. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I think, you know, he played well here, but I, I don't think, you know, there's a, I still think Chelsea will be looking for a, for a striker, for example, in the summer. Um, I think the big, the big difference for Chelsea, you know, as Gregor alluded to, was that was having Rhys James and Ben Chilwell back and at wing backs, you know, I think we've, We've seen over the last you know, couple of years that Chelsea are very much at their best when they have those two flying down the flanks. And over the past you know, 12 months or so, um, very rarely have we seen that because either one or both have been injured. So um, having both of them back uh, fit and informed for the running, I think, will, will, be a, will, be a massive, will be a massive plus for them. Gregor, Havertz, new role for him, a great false nine. Yeah, look, as I said, this was his his best performance in a long time and it has been a sort of you know it's been like some kind of code to unlock about getting the best out of Kai Havertz and sometimes when a player is in that mould then you think is it worth it you know you shouldn't have to work so hard to to build a team to you know or a system or a shape to get the best out of one player but he, when you do get the best of him you can see you know how much talent he has um his creativity and yes, his goal scoring is not necessarily going to be uh, enough to be a, a Chelsea striker, but he's certainly got the creativity. Um, and as I say, I think that actually the bigger question is still who's going to play up up front, who's going to be the number nine, because Sterling, Sterling can do it, but it's a square peg in a round hole. Um, and he'll he'll score some goals. He'll he'll be a menace. Uh, he'll offer you know, total commitment, run in, runs in behind, um, link-up plays, link-up plays far better than he's uh, given credit for. But again, if you're playing with those, with two of your front three, as as it were, I'm not kind of natural goal scorers then, and we still need to see that from, from Joao Felix then, still, arguably, there's always got to be a question mark about Chelsea's, where Chelsea are going to get the goals from, are going to be able to score enough goals? Um, but as I say, it's a positive night all round, absolutely. And definitely for Kai Havertz too. Was it a penalty? Should it have been a retake? Gregor? Not a penalty. Not a penalty. Uh, I saw Peter Walton argue, like, arguing in the Times that because the player who cleared the ball when it came back off the post was encroaching marginally, then by the law it was, you know, it was... Uh, valid to to give a retake but I thought that was pretty harsh too I just I don't know what difference really it makes to the to the penalty kick so um I think Chelsea were quite fortunate yeah penalty no penalty no retake yes Penalty, no retake. Yes. Okay. So we all agree that Chelsea didn't deserve to go through. All right. Well, uh, I'm glad we got. <laughs> I'm kidding. Of course, I am kidding. Okay. Chelsea got the job done. Great for Graham Potter. Great to see him. Uh, I think doing well. Does it mean something bigger for Chelsea? Like I say, this this run now away at Leicester at the weekend. 
at home to Everton, and then you've got a home game against Aston Villa as well. I'm kind of sitting here saying, you know, I, I know I was maybe a little bit insulting about Chelsea. I'm certainly not getting carried away by the result, but I actually think there was a change in mood and that could well continue if you build up the head of steam that, that, Oh, the train analogy. Thank God I got there in the end. Oh, you can build up a head of steam with a train. So fantastic. Gregor, we're on the right page. Um, you could build up a head of steam um, with those three games in the Premier League. And then, it, you know, once the mood is completely changed and you've got a bit of confidence and you start going into those games feeling like you can win, um, then maybe towards the end of the season, I will concede, we will be looking at a, a different Chelsea. But I do think... They have to capitalise on the good feeling that they had um, in midweek. They have to go in the weekend and make sure that they're not immediately deflated by a poor result against the Leicester side, who are almost magnificent, magnificently inconsistent, can put in some very good performance, can put in some very, very bad performances, um, as they did pretty much last weekend. So to be stopped by Leicester... Um, before a game against Everton, I think all of those negativities, all of those negative words about Potter, um, all of the bad feeling will be back if they lose at the weekend to Leicester. So it's so important that they go out there, put in another good performance, start to change the mood. And, and as I say, capitalise on midweek. If they can do that, then I agree. I agree with you both. We might be looking at a very different Chelsea side. But um, but yeah, a, a great game. And, and yeah, you're absolutely right. I think the players coming back from injury make a big difference. I think Fafana's been good at the back as well, which has made a difference as well in terms of his athleticism. Even Kukurea wasn't bad. So there you go. All around a fantastic result for Chelsea and hopefully they can carry it forward. Time, though, to talk about Tottenham Hotspur. The story's very different when it comes to them, it has to be said. Um, the Champions League campaign has ended in poor, poor fashion failing to overturn a first-leg deficit in the last 16 against AC Milan. It was goalless in North London. Spurs had two shots on target. Christian Romero was sent off, and now we're basically pondering whether the manager Antonio Conte will stay at the club, what direction the club is heading in, and what happens next with Harry Kane. And we will discuss all of those things over the next 15 or so minutes. So let's get into it. Um, let's start with the performance, shall we, Tom? It was meek. Why? Because this is uh, what we've seen from Tottenham for for most of this season. To be honest, I mean, there were there, you know there wasn't. I guess you might have expected a sort of rousing performance. You know, it's a, a big night um, for the club. Probably the biggest biggest game of the season for them. Um, Conte was back on the touchline. Um, it was all kind of there. You know, set up, and they needed to come back from one nil down. But there was just no. There was no reaction really from from the team. You know, I don't really blame the fans at all for that. I think they, you know, they did their best really in the moments when the fleeting moments when Spurs did uh, mount some sort of attack. But there just wasn't enough from the team to to generate any kind of momentum or or, or noise or atmosphere really. And and this is what we've seen from from Spurs all season under Conte. You know, it's just been it's been passive, uh, defensive, negative. Um, you know, relying on comebacks in the second half a lot, not creating enough for the front three. And when you've got Son and Kane and, and uh, Kulisevsky in your front, you know, your front trio, you know, you'd expect to create chances, but they just don't, you know. I mean, I guess the, the, the closest they came to scoring was that Harry Kane header right at the end. Um, 
And it, they just really went out with a whimper, to be honest. You know, they just never really looked like they were going to come back in this match. I thought it was pretty comfortable for AC Milan, who, you know, are a good side, but equally, you know, you wouldn't class them in the kind of real elite of the Champions League at the moment. Um, and I think it's been, a, it's been a really, really bad week for the club, uh, for Conte particularly. I think something has just sort of changed in the last few days. That Sheffield United defeat, um, obviously going out of the FA Cup, you know, in, a, in, in, in that kind of fashion, losing at Wolves at the weekend, and then also the way they played um, against AC Milan. I think those three games have really just sort of turned the, the feeling now at Spurs that actually Conte, is he the, the best man, not only for, for next season, but even for the next few weeks? You know, the, the big question the club now have to answer, I guess, is, you know, do Spurs have a better chance of holding on to fourth, of, of, of holding off Liverpool, who look, you know, resurgent, do they have a better chance of doing that with Conte in charge or without Conte? Um, and remarkably, you know, I think there is a debate to be had there. Okay, and that debate we will have, we will have Tom. But uh, you know, as we've both pointed out, lots to talk to. Um, you know, a real thunderstorm of what's going on at Spurs at the moment. Um, and that's why I wanted to get the performance out of the way because I think the football is one thing, but it obviously links to Conte links to the direction of football, but this specific 90 minutes, um, you know, Gregor, why couldn't Spurs fashion the opportunity they needed to score one goal? In fact, when you look over the two legs, you know, they haven't scored home or away against an AC Milan side that hasn't been in great form so far this season. I think fifth in Serie A. Um, we, 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 we have every right, I think, to expect more from Spurs with the players, particularly attacking players that they have. As Tom said, the, the the front three, the Spurs are, are so reliant on Kulisewski, Kane, and, and Son to to create and score the goals. I mean, behind that, there's almost no creativity, uh, and Son is just sorely. It's it's almost sad to see see how poorly he's playing. Kulisewski like kicked the ball out of play a couple of times. Kane had one kind of. He'd call it a half chance and he made more of it, uh, the header and deep into time added on. Um, which was pulled which, you know, forced a decent save. But as you say, I think that I read somewhere that the that expected goals over hundred and eighty minutes was zero point nine. Like they didn't fashion enough chances for a whole goal <laughs> over hundred and eighty minutes. It's it's really poor. And J- James Gearbrett actually wrote a really really good piece about Son today. He described him as like he said, "No, for over what's it been seven years or something?" He's, you could say that Son's been the emotional heart of the team, like a torchbearer of hope. And you know, without getting too deep about it, it's true. Son's like this kind of figure, this sort of figure of innocence and like happiness on the pitch, and he looks so sad at the moment. And it feels like he's sort of emblematic of the Spurs side. And you can, you know, look at. Kind of the broader landscape as well, and and Spurs have lost, have lost any sort of semblance of that uh, that enjoyment on the pitch after Jose Mourinho, Nuno, and now Conte, three very negative managers. You have to say, you know, I, look, and we, we've had this conversation many times as well on the podcast that there's plenty of ways of playing football, but. The the truth is, if you if you're if you play play this conservatively, and you're not getting results, and you're not actually seeing enough 
of the fundamentals, like the the kind of drive and spirit and commitment um, and sort of def- and resolve, those kind of things. You're not really seeing that. Then it leaves very little for fans to cling on to. And I think if I was a Spurs fan, just casting my sort of eyes back over the last decade or so, I'd be pretty sad at the way that they're you know, the the last ten years has unfolded really because it felt like they were on the cusp of something that was pretty remarkable in the way that they were you know, their net spend was a fraction of the big six kind of competitors and, and they were yet they were competing with them and now they're throwing cash around pretty badly like everyone else, it seems to me. Uh and they're not improving. And I know there's a lot of things been going on in the Premier League in that time and other clubs have improved but it's yeah, it's just it's Spurs are such a conundrum. We had the conversation last week about you know it, how how bad the atmosphere is. Yet Spurs are fourth in the Premier League, and they were going into the second leg with a good chance of you, you thought of overhauling Milan. And you think why is why is the atmosphere so bad? And then you see a performance like this, and you go, oh yeah, that's why, that's why. And it's it's pretty dispiriting times, I think, for Spurs. It's interesting you mentioned the style of football. Um, I'll ask you both this question, but Tom, I'll come to you first. What style of football should Tottenham be playing, really? Um, because the fans were raging, listening to the phone last night, calling uh, calling in to say that they want Mopo, Mauricio Pochettino, to return to the club because a bit like Son, you know, he gave them hope. And most importantly, you know, whether they would win trophies... Um, which wasn't the case, obviously, with Mauricio Pochettino. When they went to a game, they enjoyed watching it, and that—that's kind of the minimum that maybe a football fan should get. Yeah, I mean, I think there was always a a sort of unspoken contract, really, with with Conte, as there was with Mourinho. It was very much, okay, we will stomach the style of football, which we know is is not going to be, you know, attacking, swashbuckling, uh, front foot football as long as the wins are there, as long as, you know, we take the next step. You know, this was this was what the kind of Conte and before that, the Mourinho appointments were all about. It was all about taking the final step, you know, getting Tottenham from being a team that was just finishing in the kind of top three, top four of the Premier League to being a team that could actually win trophies and getting that, getting that um, monkey off their back, if you like. Um, and I think, you know, listen, I think, I think Spurs fans would have accepted um, this kind of counter-attacking, counter-attacking football if... It had delivered more results. Ultimately, last season, you know, they got fourth off Arsenal um, in the end. You know, and, and and actually, you know, Conte ball can be can be quite exhilarating to watch when it when it goes well. When they're playing counter attacking, when they're playing through Son and Kulusevski and Kane very quickly on the break, you know, and exploding onto teams, um, it wasn't a boring watch. It's, but it's been a different it's been a different thing this season. Spurs have you know haven't been counter attacking. Maybe teams have kind of worked them out. They've sort of worked out that all you need to do really is kind of uh, foul Kane and Son on the counter, and you, you just kind of stop stop Spurs at source. Um, but we haven't seen any of that kind of uh, counter attacking excitement this season at all. And and ultimately, then what are you left with? You're left with a team that don't have the ball. Uh, don't create chances, don't score goals, and don't win games. And and act, and actually, the irony of all this is that Tottenham, in a way, under the supposed winners in inverted commas of Mourinho and 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 Conte, have actually really looked further away from actually winning anything than they were under the builder that was Pochettino. Um, 
yes, they got to the League Cup final and then sacked Mourinho, but you know, this season they've been nowhere near any of the trophies. Um, so that's that's where the breakdown in the relationship has come, really. Um, you know, and it was all kind of summed up, wasn't it, when when Conte brought on Davinson Sanchez in the whatever it was, 82nd minute, you know, for Kulusevski, Arthur Romero got sent off, and you're thinking, hold on, you know, Spurs need to score here. They need to score two goals to win the tie, one goal to go to extra time, and you're still with seven minutes left thinking about, you know, shoring up the back five. Um, and I think that just, you know, there's been a tipping point in the last week or so where, yes, the football has been bad, it's been getting worse. And then when you combine that with three really poor results, I think uh, that's why you kind of get the craving for for the for the glory days of Pochettino again. Would it Tom's work? Right, the, 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 sorry, Tom's right. The, the Conte's football has not always been, you know, yes, it's it's... It puts an emphasis on, you know, defensive solidity, but it can be great to watch. I mean, I, I remember going out to watch a Milan derby uh, for a piece uh, not not that long ago, and it was it was thrilling. Like when he plays with real, you know, speed and sort of uh, incisiveness, it's like it can be great. And there's not, as I said, I've said many times, there's not like one way to play football, but the, he has not been able to bend this team. And these players to his will, if you like, in the way that he has in in almost every job he's had. Let's be let's be honest about it. When he arrived, you thought, "Yeah, this is <laughs> Conti's a winner. Conti will make this team. You know, he'll take them as close as they could possibly be to being a winning team." And it's not happened for for reasons that are very hard to explain. In fact, I think I think some of them fundamentally are that he's not got he's not got the players he needs in any of the back five positions, I think. And that's his, that's his bedrock. He's not, you know, Romero, you would say, is his best defender, yet he's he's turned into an absolute liability. Uh, Longley's not good enough. Ben Davis is a good, honest, solid pro, but you, know, you could probably get away with him if you had some better players alongside him. And they don't have any wing-backs. They don't have any wing-backs that are good enough. Poro might turn out to be, but they, the rest of them are nowhere near good enough. Perisic came, you know, was a player he signed, and yeah, he he, he did it. He did it at Inter, but I I don't think I don't think in the Premier League. Uh, again, he's another one like Davies you could maybe get away with, but that's your left side there, and you you weren't saying that about the the whole left side of your back five. They just don't they just don't have those players, and he's and when that's that's his basis for a for a that's his platform for a for his side uh it's not it's not worked for him i did hear one caller on the radio say uh why would portettino come back when players like ben davis and eric dyer who weren't even in his starting 11 however many years ago uh, are in the best team you know tottenham's best team now it kind of underlines a lack of development and evolution at the club and that is why um uh, you know, I think there is a lot of spotlight on, on Daniel Levy, the ownership group. Um, the development of the squad hasn't been there. Um, and it leaves me basically wondering what, what what kind of club Tottenham are. I kind of looked at them. I've looked at them this season and thought, you know what, where should Spurs be? Because I think that's the thing. I think we had a period where maybe Spurs outperformed where they should have been. Um, look, to regularly outperform the kind of the metrics that we see as sensible in football 
is a very difficult thing to do. And we see some clubs do it. They're, essentially, what I'm talking about here is budget. You know, you can outperform the amount of money, not only that you make, but the money that you spend. Um, then I think you're, you're doing pretty well in football at any level. I've spoken to managers um, a, a number of times who have said, you know, that the first question when you, a club contacts you and they want you to take the job is, what do you want me to achieve? And what's the budget going to be? And I've had managers tell me, look, if we've got the 10th biggest budget in the league, you can't ask me to get automatic promotion or to finish in the top four or the top six. It's it's not realistic to ask a manager to, to so far outperform the metrics. But that's in a one season space. If you do that year on year on year on year on year, you're not spending the money that your rivals are. You're not investing in the squad in the same way that your rivals are. What could realistically the club be expected to achieve? Now, I'm not sure that the Daniel Levy and the, and the club's board actually expect what the fans do. I don't think they go in there. Look, they hire Antonio Conte, yes, but it's very clear with the lack of money that they've spent under Antonio Conte and the previous managers that the manager is one thing that they're happy to spend money on. The squad is something that they haven't truly invested in, especially when you compare it to the level of investment at other clubs. Long story short, what I'm saying is our Tottenham club that should be finishing fifth, sixth, who knows, seventh in the Premier League. And should we be seeing a top four finish for a club like Spurs as being an overachievement? I think that's maybe more realistic. Um, Tom, what do you think? I mean, I think on results alone, you know, you have to say if Tottenham finish fourth in the Premier League and they get to the, the Champions League last 16, that is that is pretty much par for them. You know, I mean, actually, if you look at the kind of all the financial figures of, of the Premier League, Tottenham tend to come out kind of somewhere between four and six, you know, in terms of wages, in terms of transfer spend. And actually, that's probably a bit overestimating. They, they usually come about fifth or sixth in, in that group. So there's, there's nothing really to say that, Spurs should be challenging for the title or even winning the title every season. There's certainly nothing to say that Spurs should be getting the Champions League final and, and, and you know, and challenging the likes of Real Madrid to, to be European champions. Um, so, you know, in terms of their position right now, I think, you know, if you look at it in, in terms of black and white, they're probably about where they, where they are, where they should be. But the, the problem you have is this kind of circular nature of, of when you kind of base your whole reason to be around qualifying for the Champions League and finishing in the top four. The problem with that is that eventually it gets boring. You know, I think, you know, 10 years ago when Spurs first qualified for the Champions League under Harry Redknapp, those first two or three years, you know, just playing in the Champions League and, and playing against Real Madrid and sort of rubbing shoulders with those kind of clubs, that was almost felt like success in itself. But the club has moved on. The fan, Well, at least the fans have moved on, you know, and some of the players have as well. Harry Kane wants more than that. The fans want more than that now. And I think the club is still in that kind of, virtuous cycle of every season we finish in the top four we go out in the in the group stage or, or the or the or the first one or two knockout rounds in champions league the revenue keeps coming in and and, and the wheels keep turning but i think the fans have, have basically decided actually we want something a little bit different we want to win a, a trophy we want to go far in the domestic cups um we don't just want to continually want to finish fourth every single year it's a bit like when arsenal had this thing under under arsene wenger eventually you know it, 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 it gets monotonous, you know. I mean, football is not, it, it's all about trajectory. It's not about um, where you are. It's kind of, a, it's about the feeling that you're going somewhere. And I think, you know, Spurs had come from where they were, you know, 20 years ago. Yes, you would see this now as, as a success. 
but the feeling now is they're just standing still and you know and they, they've appointed these two two or three managers to try and take them to the next step and actually they're, they're nowhere near it um and uh, it, it, as you say, it leaves them in a, in a quandary now as to, as to what they do next, because yes, Pochettino is available, but would that be a good thing for the club? I don't know. It would be fun. It would be emotional. It would probably be, you know, a very easy win for the board to bring him back. Um, but, you know, I think there are lots of reservations, you know, I mean, the Pochettino team that he had, you know, there were lots of unique circumstances there. Harry Kane coming through, Deli Alley being signed for MK Dons and proving a revelation. You know, you had Kyle Walker and Danny Rose for a while with the best sort of, you know, wingbacks in Europe almost. You know, these these things all kind of came together at the perfect time. Um, Tottenham are a different club now. The team is different. Pochettino, I suspect, is a different manager 10 years on. Um, it would be a short-term uh, morale boost for everyone. Longer term, I have my doubts as to whether it would it would work out as well as everyone might hope. I think especially. Tom, uh, sorry, I think sorry. Tom, Tom summed that up absolutely perfectly. I think that, but Tottenham aren't alone in that. Uh, you know, it's a kind of feature of modern football. You could argue that maybe a dozen clubs in the Premier League, for them, survival is is the only real aim. The only really goal. The only real goal every year, and and then so it's the same thing. It's like you you. If your whole purpose every season is to is to just survive in the Premier League, then you need something more. You need something to make you go along to the games and quicken your step to the match every week, and you need entertainment. So, like, ultimately, the the reason for all of this is, is you know, is when economic sort of uh, forces overtake those of kind of football and ambition. Like I've I've written a piece today. Uh, there's now been 19 uh, changes of manager in the championship this this season. One more would be a record. Um, and the reason drive, driving that is, well, the biggest reason is uh, is economic. It's about investment coming in, pouring into the championship to try and desperately find a place in the Premier League. And then they're desperate to survive there. So, uh, you know, although it's on a different level, it's it's something that's kind of pervasive in modern football. It's actually the kind of the bottom line is the most important thing and 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 spurs have are just desperate every year now to to stay in that members club of elite european clubs uh despite the fact that you know yes they had a kind of minor miracle when they reached the final that but in recent years they've just not really competed and they do that all at the expense of of you know things like the fa cup <laughs> conti changed it's Spurs changed up their their team with kind of eyes on this game and eyes on the Wolves game. They lost the Wolves game. They lost this game. They're out the FA Cup and their season's over. Like what? What's football about if it's not about trying to win trophies? I think that's interesting, um, and it kind of it, you know it goes into the the point I was making before. Where's this club heading? Um, and should Harry Kane stay on? What is now? less of a, a speeding bullet train and more of a a kind of miniature choo-choo train, a miniature village. Um, because train analogies, Hugh. <laughs> no, no. I think it's worth putting another two train analogies into the podcast because we haven't had enough. Um, but yeah, w- w- should Harry Kane get off at the next stop? Ba-boom, what do we What do we think, Tom? Uh, I mean, I think only only Kane can know really what he how he sees the last few years of his career. If he wants to win, you know, three or four trophies, um, you know, Bayern Munich or Real Madrid, uh, 
then you know I think he has to leave. Um, no doubt about that. If he if he values you know winning one FA Cup or you know maybe an EFL Cup or something you know with with Spurs, um, then you know of course he he will he will stay. But I, I think ultimately a lot of this will come economics this summer. Harry Kane still has a year left on his contract. Um, I don't think there will be that many clubs interested in signing Kane this summer for the fee that Spurs would want for him. I would imagine Spurs will still want somewhere close to sort of 100 million, you know, to sell Kane. They will be desperate to sell him to abroad rather than a Premier League rival, etc, etc. It's going to be difficult to get Kane out of Spurs this summer. The year after, when he, when he is available for free and he's going to be, what, 31, I imagine there will be be a lot of clubs interested in taking Harry Kane for free when he's when he's that age. Um, so that could be a could be a different different uh, proposition entirely. I guess Spurs will will probably hope that they can, you know, hold on to him for another year and whatever happens next season is enough to kind of persuade him to sign one more deal. But blimey, I mean, you know, Kane has played in this Spurs team now for four or five years. He's gone through numerous coaches, numerous transitions. Um, and every time Spurs come up short, you know, and and uh, I don't think anyone could could blame blame Kane for looking for something different um, in the summer. Uh, he's he's given absolutely everything to Tottenham. He's their record scorer. You know, he, he's been their shining light for so long. Um, and uh, and yeah, you know, I think you know if he if he moved, that would be entirely understandable. I personally have to say that I think if Kane won one trophy at Spurs, it would be more of an achievement than. Than adding, you know, a list of a list of of trophies to another club where where they are already winning lots and lots of things. You know, if he just becomes another another player at City or another player at, at Bayern, you know, that that will be, you know, Kane might find some value in that for himself. Um, but I think as a journalist, you know, I almost feel that if Kane was to win one thing with Spurs, that would be be more of an achievement. But maybe that's just my uh, slightly kind of sentimental side coming out. But but no doubt, no one could blame Kane now for for wanting something different. Yeah, it absolutely is your sentimental side. He doesn't play for Brentford, for God's sake. He plays for Tottenham Hotspur. Winning a League Cup ain't going to, you know, no one's going to care. Only Spurs fans are going to care. No one's going to look back on that and say, well done, Harry. They'll probably still say, you know, he was a massive underachievement in terms of silverware during his career. You know, I think he has to win. Doesn't matter where he wins it. Don't care if it is an absolute dolly. Don't care if it's Manchester City winning the title by 50 points. I don't care if he plays for the best team in world football goes... Um, if he wins the Champions League or he wins one of the major titles, it will mean more than winning a League Cup, say, at Tottenham Hotspur or an FA Cup. Fair enough if he wins the Premier League with Spurs. That would be huge, um, but not just any trophy. No, no, I do think... I do. I, I, it's interesting you mentioned the idea of him moving on a free. Yeah, you're right. Half the clubs in Europe will at least inquire, but I think he has to go sooner rather than later. Um, I think the emergence of you know, the next generation of, of superstars in forward areas means that, um, you know, clubs will be after those players um, because they'll, they'll get more return um, on their investment if they pay a salary or even their investment in terms of wages. So relatively, the numbers he's put up this season are very good. He has to strike at this point in time. I think it's um, I think it's also psychologically coming to an end. Like, I don't know how he can continue to produce um, at the level that he is, knowing that the club's not really going in any direction. I mean, I, I don't see which manager comes in or what players come in that would suggest to him in the next um, 18 months or so that that he needs to sign a new long de- long-term deal at Spurs. And the only thing I think that would keep him there is the idea of being 
you know, a one club man um, and a Spurs legend forever. But again, I think the legend stuff's already secured. So why stay? But that's just me. Um, Spurs fans, obviously furious at everything I have to say about their club. Things not going great at the moment and a, a top four place, really the only way to salvage their season on current form. You wouldn't really bet on that happening. Um, we will continue our, our, I say continue our conversation. Spurs will come up in the next part of the podcast as we look ahead to some of the big games in the Premier League this weekend. Loads for us to preview. And there's a theme. Teams going for European places, taking on teams striving to stay in the division. That's next. As you're listening to me, Daisy, Apple's iPhone disassembly robot, is dismantling an iPhone into lots of recyclable parts. That's how Apple recovers more materials than conventional recycling methods. Thanks, Daisy. There's more to iPhone. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program. Right then, the theme in the Premier League this weekend is kind of European contenders versus relegation-threatened teams. Um, There are some interesting ones. I start maybe with the most interesting, Leeds United versus Brighton. Um, Because a lot of people have started to talk about Brighton as having an outside chance for the top four. Leeds, obviously, in desperate need of results at the moment. Um, and I think this could be a fantastic match. Brighton playing special football. Leeds United at Ellen Road always bring an extra 5 or 10%. That may not even lead to a goal the way they've played recently. But um, I do think it will be one of the better games of the weekend. So how do we see it going? Tom, I'll start with you. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think Brighton, uh, I, I, I don't think they're going to manage to get in the top four. It'd be a great story, although I sort of almost fear for them in a way if they did because already everyone is sort of I mean they've had basically everyone already pinched haven't they all their technical staff all their scouts all their kind of uh their manager and now Deserbi is already being linked with kind of a move away this summer you know potentially to, to Spurs or whoever else you know is looking for a looking for a bright up-and-coming coach um so yeah I I, I think um I think Brighton will win this I mean Leeds are look to me to be a team that is, is struggling to, to find form. Brighton are, are on the up, so uh, I, I see another Brighton victory. Yeah, I agree. I think like the top four is, talk is uh, is premature, but um, the way Brighton are playing is, has been has been remarkable this year. And you do have to look at the fact that they've got two or three games in hand on the clubs above, and you can't, you can't write them off. But with Liverpool sort of possibly resurgent, um, who knows Chelsea possibly resurgent as well, and how many times you get fooled by by the table, and 
money usually tells in the end, as we've just been discussing, really. So um, I think that may be a step too far, but I think uh, I wouldn't be surprised to see them beating Leeds again because, as I've said before, Leeds are one of many teams at the bottom who are just really struggling for goals. And um, Brighton have got so many threats uh, at the other end of the pitch that I think that they'll probably have enough. Gregor, Brentford, three points off the top six at this point in time. Um, they go to Everton, who, of course, had that win in Sean Dyche's first game in charge, haven't won since, did get a point against Forrest last weekend and in a more positive performance. What do you make of this game? Yeah, I think Brentford have sometimes had, these are sometimes the, the tests. I remember going to Brentford, uh, Bournemouth in January and, you know, they've been on a brilliant run. They're still on a brilliant run. And these kind of, I know Everton aren't Bournemouth, but they, the kind of games that are almost expected to win at home now are the, the games that are the test for them. And they, they really, they found an ugly, ugly way to win against Bournemouth in that game. And that's the kind of thing they've started to do now. So it's going to be, look, these are two of the most direct teams in the division. It's 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 likely to be a battle. Um, but Brentford are really equipped to do that now. And again, I come back to the kind of goal scoring exploits. It's Brentford have got Ivan Tony, and we saw what he could do against Fulham. And Everton reliant on set pieces or kind of scraps to 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 find a way to break the deadlock, and uh, I wouldn't be surprised to see uh, a Brentford win in this one. Can Goodison Park make the difference, Tom? Uh, maybe. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I sort of think this is the kind of game that Everton. I mean, they, you know, have to look at and think that they need to start pulling these kind of results, right? I mean. After that kind of first initial win, it's been a little bit of a, a bit of a, a bit of a sort of underwhelming run. What two or three games now without a win? Um, yeah, maybe I think at home, you know, they got a, a decent chance. I agree, Brentford the better side, no doubt about that. Um, but possibly at home, Everton could yeah could rouse here and 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 get and get an important victory. West Ham versus Aston Villa, Tom. Big pressure on David Moyes at the moment. Um, interestingly, you know, asked about himself. He has hit the point now where he's, he, you know, I, I loved it. You know, I'm the manager. It's my job. I take full responsibility. <laughs> but also these players have to have a look in the mirror, <laughs> was his response at the end of the game last weekend. Pressure on him, but pressure on the team to deliver as well. A game against Aston Villa, um, you know, it, it's it's not an easy game to have but it is in front of your own fans and I wonder if it goes badly what the atmosphere might be like yeah it's one of those isn't it when when you're at home in, in the kind of situation West Ham or anything kind of going one or two ways um you know I mean, it's so tight down there and, you know West Ham what are they got point above the bottom three um and not in not in good form either you know and as you say I mean David Moyes kind of turning it a little bit on his players there and also you know I heard him kind of talking about how you know, he remembers the good times and he hopes everyone else does as well. It seemed to me a little bit of a kind of like an appeal to to uh, to, to sort of not forget, you know, how well they did last season, the kind of, you know, the European run and everything. Um, but ultimately, that only stretches so far. You know, West Ham have to stay up. They can't afford to go down. Um, this is a big game for them, no doubt about that. Um, I think it's, it's a winnable match for them. I mean, Aston Villa are in danger, aren't they? Of kind of floating in the middle of the table. They're not really going to be in contention, I don't think, for the top kind of six or the European places. 
equally very safe now from relegation. I would say it's possible that these kind of teams in the next few weeks we might see start to kind of fizzle out a little bit. So perhaps West Ham could take 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 advantage of that. Um, but yeah, big game. Gregor, will Moyes have more pressure by Monday? Well, actually, it'd be interesting to see what happens. I'm, I'm speaking from Cyprus. I'm, uh, I'll be at the, the game against the AEK Larnaca. And um, he's spoken, he spoke beforehand about how European games, European performances, despite it being in, in the, the Europa Conference League, have kind of given them confidence uh, when they've when it's been much needed after you know struggling to get results in the Premier League this season, so a good performance, uh, a good win that kind of sets them up to to progress for this in the second leg. Uh, I think we'll do that. I think I think it um, it's it's something that a win a win in Europe um, will will definitely give them a boost, and I think I think uh, that's something that they definitely need. So. Um, but Aston Villa as well, their team has been strange recently, and they concede a lot of goals. Um, and they have they have conceded a lot of goals in certain games, and and been a bit error strewn at the back. And although Ollie Watkins has been in good form at the other end, um, there's there are definitely uh, some weaknesses to exploit. And and uh, West Ham, if West Ham have some of their attacking players on song, Jared Bowen, uh, Ben Rama, if he plays, uh, Danny Ings. Uh, who's who's obviously got his first goals for West Ham? Then there's there's no question West Ham have enough to to beat Aston Villa. Spurs versus Forest. I mean, we spoke about Tottenham enough, um, but I wonder if Nottingham Forest could cause a shock that means that this this question mark over Conte's future comes into into very sharp future. Um, your old club, Gregor. Do they have what it takes to win in London? Absolutely, and as uh, as I've said in recent weeks, the kind of the partnership that's building between Gibbs White and Brennan Johnson, um, their kind of link up play, and also their speed, and you know how direct they are in in transitions, uh, has been a real threat, no matter who the opponent is. And you know this is a game that Spurs will be expected to be the the you know the the, the main protagonist and have have the lion's share of possession. And I think that could well play into Forest Sands in terms of uh, counter-attacks through those two players. So it's possible, it's very possible, but at the same time, uh, Spurs will definitely be looking for a response. So I, I personally think that I'd be very surprised to see Forest win. Tom, Newcastle versus Wolves. I think this is a tough one to call. Wolves have been very, very good of late. Newcastle... You know, not not providing the form that we saw earlier on in the season. Um, I I think Wolves could definitely go to St James's Park and get something. Yeah, I agree. Um, Newcastle just kind of looking like, <clears throat> excuse me, there's running out of steam a little bit. You know that uh, final defeat against uh, Manchester United came in the middle of a run. I think what are they now? Five games without a win in in all competitions, including that game. You know, and, and not really necessarily against. You know, they, they drew it. West Ham and at Bournemouth, didn't they? And they've uh, lost Liverpool, City and, and United. I just feel like West um, Newcastle are now a team where when those kind of small margins were were were, were in their favour earlier in the season, when they were kind of winning 1-0 narrow victories with a very tight defence. Now, when they're just kind of letting in a few goals, the emphasis now is on their attack, which 
just you know we've known all season has been their been their big weakness and you know when the clean sheets have started to dry up they haven't really been scoring enough goals to uh, to make amends for that so um, definitely Newcastle kind of on the slide I think and Wolves on the up you know they're coming off the back of a good win against Spurs last weekend when admittedly they didn't play particularly well in the first half but you know they came 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 storming back in the second some some really smart substitutions from Lobotegi. Um and they look like a side I think who could who could uh, sort of hold Newcastle, keep them at bay, keep the game tight, and maybe nick something in the second half again. Lopetegui is a is a very smart coach, uh, delivers very organised teams. I think this would be a tight, low scoring game, and I think it could go either way. The final game maybe requires a little bit of chat from both of us um, because Liverpool have the opportunity in going to Bournemouth, who of course beaten right at the death by Arsenal last time out. But they, they have the opportunity to back up the 7-0 win over Manchester United in emphatic style. We've got to say Bournemouth are bottom in the league. And the mentality going into the second leg against Real Madrid could be we're free-flowing, we're scoring goals, we're back. And who knows where that might take them. So um, I'm intrigued to see if Liverpool, with all due respect, Bournemouth fans, could you know they did hit seven against my team last week, so this is nothing against you. Could hit five or six this weekend against Bournemouth, and then you know it's absolutely supercharged going into the, the game at the Bernabeu against Real Madrid. In my mind, that could easily happen. Um, or Jurgen Klopp rests everyone for Real Madrid and they maybe don't perform as well as they did last weekend. What do we think? What do we think, Gregor? I'll start with you. See, I think that's that's slightly underestimating Bournemouth. I think everyone, you know, there's a, obviously it's extremely concertina. I think there's six points, throws a blanket over about, was it, nine clubs at the bottom and Bournemouth at the bottom. Uh, but as referenced that game uh, against Brentford, so they lost that game 2-0 uh, and there was nothing in it. Nothing in it. It was such an ugly win for Brentford. But since then, they've drawn with, uh, drawn with Forrest. Forrest equalised in, I think, like the 83rd minute through Sam Surridge, their former player. They've drawn drawn against Newcastle. They lost an 87th minute uh, goal by Matoma at Brighton. Uh, they played not bad against City, although they obviously lost for one. And we know what happened against... They, they beat Wolves. And we know like they played well against Arsenal. And obviously, they didn't hold on for the... But the, I, I actually think they're doing all right. I think they've been improved by their some of their, some of their signings in January. I think it would be foolish to write them off. Look, I'm not saying they're going to swat aside Liverpool here, but I don't think it's quite right either to start to talking about scoring five or six. Uh, I think I think it would be foolish to completely write off Bournemouth yet. Although, if you look at, I, I take Gregor's point, but if you look at, I'm looking here at the uh, recent results, Bournemouth, Liverpool, Liverpool win 4-0, 3-0, 4-0, 3-0, 3-0, 4-1, 9-0. So, um, uh, I don't know what the aggregate is there. It must be about 28 the, or something in the last six games. 3 0, we'll take it then. <laughs> <laughs> we'll see. I, I'm also intrigued to see what the lineup is, to be perfectly honest, um, from Jurgen Klopp and Liverpool. It is a club that is clearly moving in the right direction. I think, you know, you're not going to see them beat teams that are in the top four, 7 0 every weekend, but um, a number of clean sheets of late. Um, clearly, the likes of Cody Gakpo, um, Darwin Nunez beginning to feel far more comfortable in a Liverpool shirt, linking up with Mo Salah nicely, who was fantastic last weekend and has been once again putting up fantastic numbers for Liverpool. Um, y- y- you kind of wonder if 
you know, if there's a bit of rotation there, we know Diogo Jota's back from fitness. Um, will that almost take away from the fantastic result last weekend in terms of the clicking? I would just want to put the same team out again, um, say, go and do your stuff for at least an hour, see if we can get a few goals up, get that real boost and connection and keep that in place for a game against Real Madrid. Look, it's Liverpool in the Champions League. I know it's Real Madrid in the Champions League, but it's also Liverpool in the Champions League. You have to still believe that just about anything is possible. And um, and I just think this weekend you go out and, and hopefully, you know, if you can score four or five and just keep that massive confidence from the win over Manchester United, then miracles might happen out in Madrid. Anyway, we'll look ahead to that uh, on Monday. Of course we will, as well as being... Um, I guess our, you know, erudite selves looking back on the weekend in the Premier League as well. Um, it's going to be an intriguing one. I think it might be one for the, the Acker, to be perfectly honest. There's a lot of teams towards the top end against a lot of teams at the bottom end. So who knows? Woozy might win a tenner or so. Anyway, um, in the meantime, make sure you download the Times app. You can also, of course, subscribe to the game online. It's thetimes.co.uk forward slash the game. Pick up a paper Saturday morning. All the best from our writers ahead of another big weekend of Premier League football. And we'll see you on Monday. Take care. helps you control which apps you share your exact location with. There's more to iPhone.